0: Good morning. All right, it's exciting to be here. Um, I, I haven't been in this room since one of the first months that you guys planted at a night service, so it's cool to see a bunch of new faces and cool to see what God is doing here in the city of Wakefield. So uh, it's my privilege to be in this pulpit. Um, Joey invited me to come preach, and so I said yes. Um, it's, it's great to share the gospel wherever we go because we share the same truth together together as God's family. Um, a little bit about me. If you don't know who I am, if I haven't met you, introduce myself to you. My name is Dan Coe. Uh, I'm one of the pastors at Seven Mile Road in Malden. Um, I pastored alongside Joey for a short while. Um, I was in the same small group with Dave for a long time. Actually actually uh, met him uh, right before they had Jacqueline. I remember holding Jacqueline, this little baby girl. Um, now she's just so tall. And so we, we go back a long way. We're good friends. Uh, we pastored at Seven Mile in Melrose for a while, and then he planted this church. And then eight months ago, uh, myself and about 30 other people, we planted a church in Malden to reach that urban, multi-ethnic growing population there. And so uh, that's what we've been doing for the last eight months. Um, and you guys have been a generous church in in supporting that work. So on behalf of the church in Malden, thank you guys for just being committed to church planting. Uh, being committed to the gospel going forth all over Boston, all over New England. You guys have been a great part of, of that work in Malden. Um, just a little bit about me so you know who I am, you know who this guy is with the mic. Uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I grew up in a little city called Homewood, Illinois. I don't know if you guys know where that might be. Um, but ever since I was gripped by Jesus and his gospel at the age of 18, I had this... Um, unshakable Holy Spirit call on my life uh, to share the gospel and see the gospel take root among Bostonians. And so that's what I've been doing ever since I moved here six years ago, uh, to see the gospel take root here, to see it transform all of New England. And um, uh, I've been giving my life to that. I met my wife, Caroline, who probably just dipped out of the room. Uh, we, we're all like recovering from a cold and pink eye and different things. So if, if you hear that right now, you, it's okay to shake my hand. I'm actually over it, so it's cool. Um, if you hear a little tone in my voice, it's because we're recovering, but I met my wife Caroline at the University of Illinois. Uh, we've been married for five years. We have two kids, a three-year-old son who's in the Restoration Road Kids, and then we have one daughter, Addis, who's one years old. Uh, she's back there with mom, so you can say hi to them. Um yeah, so it's exciting what's happening here. Um, it's exciting that the gospel is going forth all over Wakefield and Malden, and um, you guys have been a great part of that. Uh, I just want to share kind of what God's doing in Malden really briefly because I really feel like the, the gospel is taking root there. The good news of what Jesus has done is taking root there. We're actually seeing people come to know Jesus for the first time, see how the gospel intersects with their lives, and it's just uh, birthing new life. And so we got to baptize a bunch of people at the end of the summer uh, and celebrate the new life that Jesus gives by his grace to his people. And so we got to do that. And over and over again, we're seeing seeing men and women just ask this beautiful question. I don't know if you guys have asked this yourself, but ask this beautiful question of, and if the gospel is true, then what about my life needs to change? They're asking that question. Right? One example, I'm, I've been discipling this guy who's in his twenties and he's kind of making a, he's had a pattern of making some destructive decisions in his life and running to a bunch of destructive things, um, for comfort and for relief. And, um, recently he came up to me a couple days ago and he's just like, Dan, uh, I'm finally getting it. I'm realizing that whatever changes in my life, whether I get a new job, make more money, or, you know, find a girl, find a nice girl, like whatever changes in my life, that's never going to fill the void in my heart like Jesus will. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. Cause you're getting that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how the circumstances change around you, you realize that it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that fills and fills that void, fulfills us, gives us joy, gives us satisfaction, and gives us purpose. So uh, it's an incredible privilege to preach in this pulpit. I know Joey has a tenacious love for you guys. He does. Um, you got you guys know how much he talks about his daughters. He loves his daughters. He has that same sort of love, maybe a little notch lower, but same sort of love for you guys. He loves you guys. And so he wants you guys to have a steady diet of the gospel over and over again. So we were texting back and forth and he's like, I'm like, what do you want me to preach? And he's like, he, three words he texts back. He says, preach that gospel. Period. He didn't. He didn't reply back for another week. He said, "Preach that." I'm like, "All right, whatever. I'll preach that gospel." So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna preach that gospel. Before I get there, I wanna, I wanna take you back a bit, okay? Um, I'm not known to have a really good memory. I'm actually on the cusp of probably having a lot of amnesia. I just really don't remember anything. I have a hard time remembering anything, and Caroline gets so frustrated because of me. Um, but I do remember a few profound moments in my life that have really shaped me and defined who I am. One thing I do remember, and I bring this up because Joey's here, I remember exactly where I was sitting when the 2009 Boston Celtics crushed the will of the Chicago Bulls during an epic seven-game playoff series, the best playoff series I've ever witnessed. I don't know if you guys remember this playoff series. You remember, Joey. Right? Right? This was an epic playoff series, and the Celts crushed the will of the Bulls. I'm from Chicago, so I'm a little bit of a Bulls fan. Um, and I remember exactly where I was sitting, and all the Celtics fans just having pity on me, and me riding the T all the way back home, just kind of sad. And so I remember that. Um, but I also remember the moment when I learned to ride my bike. You guys remember that moment? Well, a while ago. Take, Go back to that moment when you first learned to ride your bike, Okay. Um, I remember it was on Morgan Street when I was living in Homewood, Illinois. Um, on Morgan Street. Um, and the thing you need to know about Morgan Street is it's, it goes on for like three blocks and at the end of that block is this thing called a cul-de-sac. You guys know what a cul-de-sac is? Alright, cool. I thought maybe it would just be like, what? Like, just, just for a bunch of people that might not, you know, live in a cul-de-sac and know what a cul-de-sac is, it's, it's a, it's a dead end that has like a soft, you know, ending, right? It's got pretty pretty much a traffic circle at the end of it so you can kind of go back out. Uh, So it ends in a cul-de-sac, Morgan Street. My my dad, on a fall night, I remember I was wearing something like a little bit warmer. On a fall night, he decided it was a good idea to take off the training wheels and teach me how to ride my bike. So we get out there. He gets me on Morgan Street facing the cul-de-sac and he takes off the training wheels, holds my bike, and if you guys know, you know, a little bit of riding a bike, um, the faster you go, the easier it is to stay on the bike, right? It's all about momentum. Keep the momentum going. If you lose that momentum, you tend to tip over, right? There's two spots where you can fall, uh, you're more prone to fall. When you start pedaling, starting to get that momentum going, and then at the end when you're stopping, right, when that momentum has stopped. So my dad takes the takes the bike, takes the back of it, and starts sprinting. Now he's getting that momentum going. Right? And as he's sprinting, he's yelling at me, he's telling me, he's saying, start pedaling, start pedaling, start pedaling. Right? And I'm thinking, all right, got to start pedaling. you got to remember, this was like the late 80s, right? So bike helmets weren't the law back then. And so like it was life or death. I had to start pedaling. So I started pedaling, and I kept going. And I, I remember, okay, the faster I go, the, the, the easier it's going to be for me to balance. And so I, I just start pedaling. And pedal and pedal and pedal. And I was just zooming. And I looked behind me and my dad was by a tree just standing there just clapping and just cheering me on. He's like, keep pedaling, keep going, keep going, right? And it was then I, was, I realized, okay, I'm riding my bike by myself. It's a proud moment. But then it hit me. I was riding my bike by myself. I didn't know how to stop this thing. No one told me, all right, now you have to eventually get off. So I was going down this Morgan Street towards the cul-de-sac. I, I passed one block, passed another block, and get to the end, and I know I have to stop because it's a dead end, right? I didn't know how to turn. I just knew how to go straight. And so was, it's was this dead end, and then so I just slam on the brakes, and my bike just screeches for like two feet. And then I stop. All the momentum stops. And I didn't know how to balance, so I just fell over and the bike fell on top of me. All right? Now, the reason why I want that picture to stick in your mind because I think it's a, an accurate picture of how we all experience the gospel. Right? It's, it's a great snapshot of how our lives look like when we encounter the gospel and become disciples of Jesus Christ. We treat the gospel and Jesus' work on the cross, that good news, like how he learned to ride a bike. Jesus meets us when the training wheels pop off. He takes our seat and sort of gets us started. Boom. Gets the momentum going. And then we imagine him saying, all right, start pedaling now. And we imagine him kind of letting us, letting us go and saying, all right, it's on you. And we imagine the rest of our lives pedaling keeping that balance, making sure we don't fall down, right? In other words, we lean on Jesus for that moment to get that momentum going. But then the rest of our lives, we spend leaning on ourselves to keep it going, right? But here's the thing. It's not enough to have a gospel-centered moment. We need to be living gospel-centered lives. Right. What I want to do today is show you um, how the gospel is not just a way in, but it's a way of life. All right. How the gospel is not just a way in, but it's a way of life. In other words, I want to show you how um, when you're in relationship with Jesus, you never move past the gospel. You never get over it. Right? Even if you're not a Christian, you always have to deal with the question, what do I do with Jesus? Right? What do I make of this Jesus? And even if you become a Christian, you still have to deal with the question, what do I do with Jesus? Right? What do we make of this Jesus? The gospel doesn't only change a moment. The gospel changes everything. All right, where do we get that reality? Colossians 1, 3, 6. You don't have to turn there. Um, but Colossians 1, 3 to 6 says this. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And here's where Paul gets at it. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit, continually bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. The picture here is the gospel taking root in some soil, growing, bearing fruit, and multiplying. Over and over again. And not just in the world, but Paul says it's bearing fruit and increasing in you since the day you heard it. Right? So the gospel is is that powerful. It's a powerful thing. It's not just for a moment. It's for the rest of your life. The gospel isn't just something that you frame up on a wall, that you remember on the day of your baptism. It's something that has power to give you life, forever it's the power of god for all of life all right before we go any further we gotta define the terms right what do we mean by the gospel all right what do we mean by the we say the gospel all this the gospel that gospel this we say the gospel, the word gospel all the time in church and for good reason right without it why are we here there's no reason to be gathering and celebrating. What are we celebrating? What are we gathering for? So the, the gospel is this. What is the gospel? The gospel is God's plan to save sinners through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The gospel is God's plan to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is an event. It's good news. It's not good advice that we live up to, it's good news, something that happened, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and through that, we are saved. It's a good news that God the Father sent the Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death we should have died, to give us the gift that we could not earn. That's the gospel. So here's the problem. We tend to treat the gospel just like any old news. It's not the good news, it's just news, right? And we hear news every day, especially with the, the technology now and just Twitter and Facebook and all that. We're reading articles and news stories, right? We got the interview hack. We got, you know, the, the New York cops that have, were brutally murdered. We got all these things happening over and over again and it's news for a day or two and then slowly we kind of move past it we can't do that with the gospel because it not only gives us this new life, it sustains your new life, right? In other words, the gospel is not just a way in, it's a way of life, all right? I want to draw your attention to the cross chart. I Dave passed you guys out this little thing, and I, I just want to use that as a visual. It's not anything spectacular, but just as a visual so you guys know what I'm talking about. But this will serve as a helpful paradigm to see how the gospel is a way of life, right? For some of us, we've experienced the power of the gospel in a moment, at conversion. All right, we saw how in that moment, Jesus showed you that apart from him, you couldn't do anything to save yourself. That you were dead in your sin. That if you wanted any chance to have peace and wholeness and reconciliation with God, to be in relationship with, to be put back into the Im- as an image bearer of God. If you wanted any chance of that, then you needed Jesus to credit you his righteousness. And it's in that moment you experience and understood that God's holy and I'm not. God's good and I'm not. And from that point forward, what ends up happening is what ideally ends up happening is you grow in the knowledge of that. You grow in the knowledge of an increasing awareness of the holiness of God, how amazing and perfect and, and awesome he is. And you also grow in the knowledge of how sinful you are, the depth of your sin, how deep it goes, how, how it's way more sinful than you ever thought it could be. It's not that God becomes any holier than He was at conversion. It's not that you begin to sin more after conversion. It's that your awareness of the realities of it increase. Right? That's why we get that. Now, you'll probably start sinning less because you'll realize the root of your sin uh, goes deeper and deeper, and you realize, man, Jesus has covered that, and you'll, you'll, you'll revel in in the glory of the cross. That's why the cross gets bigger. See, as you get an increasing awareness of God's holiness, as you see an increasing depth of your sinfulness, that gap grows, and the beauty and the majesty of what Jesus did on that cross grows. You finding joy in the cross and the gospel and Jesus' finished work grows bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what we see in the scriptures. Let me ask you a question. Have you guys experienced that reality? Are you guys experiencing an ever-increasing joy in Jesus? Flip Flip the sheet around. A lot of us probably don't, including me. Instead of growing in a gospel-centered joy at Jesus' work and seeing him cover that gap increasingly over time, we still have indwelling sin that we're working with. We still have a lot of things that we're dealing with inside, and it rears its ugly head in two ways. There's two ways that we compromise this ever-increasing joy in the gospel as disciples. One is performing, and the other is pretending. These two things threaten our joy in the gospel. Because the truth is we're going to fall into either or. I want to define these things. So pretending. What is pretending? Pretending is minimizing our sinfulness by making ourselves to be something or someone that we're not. Covering up ourselves. Putting a mask on. Performing is minimizing God's holiness believing that it's an expectation that we can actually meet through our own efforts, through our own strengths. Right? And so there's, there's two traps here that minimize the power of the gospel and enjoying it increasingly over time. So I want to just unpack that. Luke 18 is where we're going to spend our time real quickly. I just want to unpack what uh, we mean by pretending and performing. Just unpack these two things that threaten our joy in the gospel increasingly over time. And so I want to talk about pretending. Luke 18, 9 to 14. Okay? I'm going to read this real quickly for us. It's a parable that Jesus talks to um, teaches his disciples. He says this. He told this parable to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee Standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing way far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What we have here is a parable that Jesus uh, uses in order to highlight a single truth one single truth. And he tells us in verse 9 exactly what it is. His purpose is to talk to the people, address the people that thought they were somehow more righteous than they really were by looking down on others, by puffing themselves up, by comparing themselves to people that were unlike them, that weren't doing the things that they were doing. there are two people that Jesus uses to highlight this truth. He uses the Pharisee and then the tax collector, right? These are Two completely opposite people on the social spectrum. You got the Pharisee, who's a, a well-educated, um, well-respected, um, well-read, sort of well-dressed, um, righteous man of God. And then you got the tax collector. He's not like um, he's not like your run-of-the-day, run-of-the-mill, like IRS kind of boring IRS you know tax collector. He's like our modern-day thief. I think about that. He's our modern-day thief. He was somebody that aligned himself with the oppressive Roman government. Right? He would um, collect these unjust taxes of the citizens, and he would give it back to, the, to Rome and then take a little bit for himself to line his own pocket, and he would, he would do that um, stealing pretty much from the people. So if I put these two people up before you without even saying anything, you would already have an opinion on who God would accept, right? Who God would say, all right, justify. You got the Pharisee who's able to say, hey, I fast twice a week and I give 10% of everything. How many of us in this room can say that? I can't say that. And then you got the tax collector who's basically a thief. Money's falling out of his pockets. That's not his own. So if I put these two people up, you already have an idea of who God's going to accept. But let's listen to their prayers. The Pharisee says this. He says, thank you, God, that I'm not like all the other people in here. I'm better than them. Thank you that I'm not unjust, that I'm not an adulterer, I'm not an extortioner, and especially I'm not like that tax collector. And he points to him. That's how he comes to God. He says, I'm righteous because I'm not like these guys. And then the tax collector basically can't even look to God. He beats his breast and says, God, be merciful To me, a sinner. And who does Jesus say leaves that temple that day justified? Who? The tax collector, right? The difference between these two prayers was that the Pharisee basically was praying, God, you need to listen to my prayers, right? I'm not doing all the bad things like these scumbag sinners are doing. I'm a good person. I'm not like them. And he compares himself and sets himself apart by comparing himself to those to, to, to the tax collector. But the tax collector looks at himself and says, "God, I have no grounds to stand here. I don't even belong to stand in front of you and to be talking to you. Except that I believe that you're a merciful God. And because you're merciful, you'll listen. See, the Pharisee believed that because his sins weren't as bad as the tax collector, he was righteous. We do that a ton. I don't know if you guys know that. I, I do that a ton. We all do that a ton. You probably just did it to the fake Pharisee in this parable. You're like, man, that's a scumbag. That guy. I hate that guy. Right? We minimize our own sinfulness by making ourselves out to feel better about ourselves, by comparing ourselves to people lower than us, people doing worse things than us, sinning more than us, right? We pretend. But we all pretend differently, right? So I want to ask you the question, just think for yourself, what do you count on? What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility or acceptance? What do you count on to give you a personal sense of credibility or acceptance? Right, do you hide behind the mask of religion? At least I come to church every Sunday. I'm faithful. I go to, I go to home group. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't go and to the golf course every Sunday like all these other sinners, these pagans. I come to church. Do we hide behind our finances? Look at my budget. Nice and clean. Got a spreadsheet. At least I don't waste all my money overspending and putting it on my credit cards. I'm good. They're not. Do we hide behind our incredible parenting? Man, I know how to take care of my kids. I'm such a good parent. I know how to, man, I know none of, none of us are like, oh. But maybe you do. Um, I know how to manage my household. I know what, what the right thing to do for my kids, right? Maybe we pride ourselves in that. Truth is, we have tons of these false legalisms, these false bottoms we create for ourselves so we can feel like we're above everybody, we can feel like we're righteous, we feel like God would ex- accept us more, right? How we drive, why well, we all feel righteous when we drive, we're right, everyone else is wrong, right? Um, I did that this morning, there was this guy really slow, I was like, I need to get there by 10.30, I can't get there, just, anyway, um, I was <laughs> repenting, Um we, we're, we're, we feel good about ourselves because of how flexible we are, right? I can, I can flex. I can start late. I'm good. Or maybe we feel good about ourselves because we're on time, right? I'm always early. I'm here right on time. We should start at 11. Um, or maybe we, we're just really, you know, righteous about how smart we are or, or whatever, right? We have all these things where we find our righteousness in instead of Jesus. Those are ways we minimize our sinfulness. Say, we're not that bad. Look at all the good things we're doing. Look at me. I made it. I'm not as bad as everybody else. That's why God should accept me. For pretenders, our worst fear is to be found out. Our worst fear is to have everybody know exactly how sinful we are, how the depths of, the, how sin is in the depths of our hearts. That's why we hide behind these self-righteous masks. So instead of facing our sin, right, we cover it up. We deflect and we say, look at all the good things. But notice the only man that left that temple that day justified was this tax collector who looked at his sin and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew exactly what he was. He didn't have any false bottoms. He didn't have any false righteousness. Righteousness. He saw his sin for exactly what he was and trusted God to provide the cover for that gap. He didn't provide the cover for that gap himself. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's how Jesus in his gospel becomes a way of life. Right? Discovering the depths of your sin, and the ugliness of your own heart, and trusting Jesus to fill that gap for you, to be your righteousness. All right, Performance, next thing. We're in Luke 18 still. We're going to talk about performance. How does performance threaten our increasing joy in the gospel? I want to take you to Luke 18, just a couple verses back down from uh, where we stopped in verse 18. It says, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Hope you, hope you heard that. The ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father or mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, all right, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Remember, the performer's issue is that we minimize God's holiness to create a a lower expectation so that we feel like we can meet that expectation through our strength, through our effort, through our work. And in this narrative, right, a man approaches Jesus. Now, by every standard of the definition, this is a very successful man. He is a rich, young ruler, right? That's like the trifecta, right? He has an incredible wealth. He has a bunch of people following him in leadership, and he's done all of this in a very short amount of time. He's young, right? And so by every sense of the word, he is successful, And as he approaches Jesus, he asks the ultimate performer question. I don't know if this is you, but it could be some of you. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what can I do to put God in my debt? What can I do so that God can owe me one? If I stay faithful to my wife... If I tithe above 10% on the gross, if I give to the poor, if I go to church every Sunday, help set up, help tear down every week without complaining, then God must be happy with me, right? God owes me. I'm faithful. I'm doing what I need to do to inherit eternal life. He can't say no to that. No way. But what performers fail to realize and fail to become aware of is God is much holier than you ever imagined. God is so perfect and his standards are far greater than we would ever know. And by thinking that he'll be impressed by your resume mocks that that God's somehow impressed by what you're doing, that he's saying, man, I need that guy on my team. You're mocking his holiness. Performers convince themselves that they can meet God's expectations through their own effort. See, performers build their lives on their own work. They have amassed a body of work and they've built their life on it. They've built up a resume that God can't refuse. When it comes to the pearly gates, which is why when Jesus tells a rich young man that all that's nice, but he's got one more thing, that there's something he's lacking, that something that he has to give away, that he has to get rid of everything he's amassed his whole life that pretty much defines who he is. That's why this man becomes, according to the scripture, very sad. I don't know what that looks like, but he was very sad. All that he's worked his whole life to accumulate, he's got to leave it at the door in order to enter into the kingdom of God. So he looks at Jesus He looks at his stuff and takes his stuff and starts walking away. Because for him, that's his life. He's built his own life. He couldn't give it up. That was his identity. That's the dilemma performers face. When the stakes are raised, right? When we realize there's something more that we can't actually get there that there's nothing we can actually do to meet that expectation for God's holiness, that we don't quite measure up, we're forced to make a decision at that point. Do we ditch all that we've worked so hard for? Our life, our work. Or do we take on Jesus' completed work? All that he's accomplished through the cross, through his life, death, and resurrection. And that's a huge risk. And unfortunately, many performers, right? We then say no to Jesus, and we take our stuff, and we move on. We move on to a different arena of life where somebody's gonna pat us on our back and cheer us on and say, hey, good job. I like what you did there. You're smart. You're intelligent. You're impressive. You're rich. Because they've built their whole lives on their own merit system. And when they say that, then they see that they can't actually do anything to earn God's favor. Everything crumbles. Maybe if I got my family right, then God would accept me. Maybe if I started reading my Bible and tithing and serving and doing all, loving my neighbors and serving the poor and all these things. Maybe if I did all these things, then God would accept me. But none of those things will get you accepted by God. Because the gospel says, for by grace you have been saved. And through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. By grace. You can't earn salvation. That's the problem of the performer. That's why we lose joy in the gospel, because we're trying to earn salvation. And that's exactly where we need to fight up against that. That's exactly where we need to see that the gospel is a way of life, that we can't actually earn it, that that gap between God's holiness and where we are, that Jesus fills that gap by his gospel, by his cross, by his accomplished work, that daily we grow in our awareness that, yes, I'm not enough, but Jesus is that he is stronger, he is bigger, that he is better than us. And we lean on Jesus' finished work for us to help us meet that mark. That's where you find joy. So Restoration Road, I don't want you to miss the gospel this morning. Actually, I don't want you to miss the gospel tomorrow. And I don't want you to miss the gospel the next day or next week or next month or this next year. I want you to love Jesus for what he's done every single day of your life. Not just at the point of conversion you you look on it with nostalgia and say, man, that was awesome. Remember what Jesus did back then? No, Jesus is doing that right now because there's a lot of sin still in your heart and you need Jesus. We all do. And so you can lean into Jesus or you can lean into yourself. Jesus doesn't want to just keep, uh, doesn't want to just get you going, right? He doesn't want to just take the back of your bike and get you started. He wants to run alongside you until the end of the age, right? I will be with you until the end of the age. He wants to keep you going. Let that ever growing knowledge of the gospel bring you joy this next year. Incredible joy. Increasing joy. Right, Trust in Jesus every day. Experience what it looks like to lean into him and not into yourself. See what they mean. When Paul says, I've given up everything, everything I've worked so hard for, all my accolades, my whole resume, everything, so that I can know the surpassing worth of Jesus. And then you'll see why the gospel is not just a way in, but it's a way of life.